Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare, a medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine. He is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. <clears throat> now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right, folks, so welcome to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. As always, it's my pleasure to be here to talk about our faith. What a better thing to do in this world than to talk about that which we believe to be true in our hearts, that which is going to take us to eternal life. Let me just read something here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church for today's show, today's program. This is paragraph 1327. It says, in brief, the Eucharist is the sum and summary of our faith. Our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. We're going to read that again, but remember, as I always say, we need to start thinking like Catholics, and the Catechism of the Church tells us that in order to think like Catholics, we have to start with the Eucharist. That's, that's what it's all about, folks. It's, are we willing to fight for this Eucharist? Um, it's an important question to ask because in today's world, you know, we kind of see it as a, uh, as just a, a lot of people will tell you it's a symbol. It's not the real presence of Christ. What is the Eucharist? Um, let's get into that. But before we do, let's go ahead and start with a prayer here at the top of the noon hour. We'll start with the queen of heaven or also known as the Regina Celli in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Queen of heaven rejoice. Alleluia for he whom you did merit to bear. Alleluia has risen as he said. Alleluia. Pray for us to God, alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary, alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen, alleluia. Let us pray, O God, who gave joy to the world through the resurrection of thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant, we beseech thee, that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, his mother, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke and we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, folks. Well, why talk about the Eucharist? Well, my first question to that, or the first answer to that question would be, why not? That's technically all we should be talking about is the Eucharist. You know, let me read that paragraph again from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says, this is paragraph 1327, in brief, the Eucharist is the sum and summary of our faith. Our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. Do we want to be better Catholics? Do we want to know how to follow the Catholic Church? Uh, do we want to know how to live our lives as Catholics? Remember, I always say we've got to think like a Catholic in order to live like a Catholic in order to be Catholic. Um, that, that's what it's all about. We've got to get ready for the Eucharist. But why bring it up now? Well, you know, it's interesting when we start to see things in the news and, and things uh, um, really in, in life, we start to look at what is the Eucharist? We, we can get complacent with it. We can get very um, so used to it being around 
you know, there's churches in every corner here in Southern California. Uh, you know, you go to Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego County, there's always a church. There's always a mass being said somewhere. Uh, there's a divine liturgy. Anytime that we want to go receive the Eucharist, it's there. We've been very blessed in that way in, in very populous areas. And a lot of people can debate, well, I don't like that priest, or I don't like that bishop, or I don't like this or that. doesn't change what the Eucharist is. doesn't change the value of the Eucharist. It doesn't change our Lord uh, being present in the Eucharist. But we can easily get complacent. I think it was a big wake-up call to a lot of us um, recently in the last few years when, under quarantine, a lot of the churches closed down. And a lot of people did not have access to the Eucharist. I think it was something that we just never expected would happen. It's kind of like in the midst of an earthquake, they always tell you, be prepared, have your water, have your food. Um, You know, and all of a sudden an earthquake happens and we start to really appreciate what it means to have water and food because when when there's no disaster, when there's nothing going on, we just assume everything is going to be there because it is at hand for us here, Um, which is great. I think it's great that it's at hand, but on the contrary, it makes it sometimes so that we start to take it for granted in the sense of not just that it's there, but for granted that, you know, I can receive any time. There's no reason I can't go. Yeah. Did I go to confession or not? It's okay. You know, we're plentiful. We have plentiful communion. We have plentiful uh, confession times here. Yeah. It's all, it's okay. It, it can kind of diminish the sacrament. But recently, if you start looking in the news, there was a, a article that I was reading um, about the archbishop of San Francisco, who said that <clears throat> one of our politicians could not receive communion due to abortion support. Now, he did not officially excommunicate this politician. He did not say that they were not part of the church, but they said due to the pro-abortion stance that this politician has publicly declared, um, he said that, you know, the, this is what it says, Corleone has written to the California Democrat, including her informing her that she should not present herself for Holy Communion at Mass and that priests will not distribute communion to her if she does present herself. And he did this for the Archdiocese of San Francisco. Um, why? Because he said that there would be a, this is, shall we say, a sanction, um, not excommunicated officially, but a sanction because of a very public pro-abortion stance. You know, a lot of people will react to this news and be extremely happy and be overjoyed and say, finally, you know, this is a stance. Other people will say that, well, this is not enough. You know, this politician should be excommunicated officially. Um, They really need to uh, come down hard on this because how can you declare something that's not part of the faith? How can you live a life like that and publicly say that sin is okay, especially a sin like abortion, which the Catholic Church holds as pretty much the, you know, the, the ultimate sin there, uh, when we're looking at, at murder and, and, and human life. But a lot of people might say, you know, that's not enough. There's got to be more. Other people might say, well, finally this happened. Other people might argue and say, well, that's not the case. There should not be any sanctions. You know, we should all, as people, be able to have our own opinions and yet still go receive communion. And so that's really the challenge here because, The reality is, if we're going to be Catholic, then we're going to have to think like Catholics. We're going to have to live like Catholics. And if I'm living like a Catholic, I'm not so worried about this politician or not. You know, I let God decide that fate. I let God do that judgment because who am I to judge? As Pope Francis said, I can can judge what the church teaches is right or wrong. I can judge if somebody is declaring something that's not right. Uh, according to what the church teaches. I cannot dec- I cannot officially say what their relationship with God is uh, because I can't get into that person's mind and I don't know that. Our, our relationship with God, our interior life is very, very private. 
but if we're making public declarations, um, obviously it tells us something about what you're thinking, right? How we're going to speak based on how we think. The important part though about this article wasn't so much leading me to wonder, well, you know, what's going on with this politician and, and we should fight more in politics, which obviously, you know, we're, we're going to think about that and that's natural conclusion. But what it really made me think about for myself, and I, I would say hopefully for all of us as Catholics is, am I ready to receive communion every time I do? Now granted, I'm not a big public figure in, in, in on, on the huge uh, platform um, declaring anything against the teachings of the church. But now this is why I say I got to look at my private life. I got to look at my interior life because I can publicly, the same way that somebody can publicly declare certain things, I don't know what's going on in their interior life. Somebody else can declare things, I should say initially, if somebody declares things against the church for whatever reason, um, or says that some of the teachings of the church are not adequate or right, I don't know what's going on in their interior life. The, the converse can be true. I could be preaching in the name of our Lord. I could be preaching uh, everything that the church says, and I can declare that it's right. But what's going on interiorly for us? Because I think we all go through a struggle. We all go through, you know, knowing what I'm supposed to do, but am I living what I'm supposed to do? Am I living that in my heart? Am I saying that, yes, of course, I'm going to go receive communion. Of course, I'm following the tenets of the church. But am I really, have I done a good examination of conscience for myself? That's really what this article made me think about. Because I can sit there and look at and wonder if other people are receiving uh, in the state of grace or not. But that doesn't matter in the bigger picture if I'm not focused on myself a little bit and trying to see that big log in my eye, as Christ says, while I point out the, you know, the, the small splinter in somebody else's eye. I think this article really made me think back and, or make me think, made me turn internally and ask myself, am I being a devout Catholic interiorly or are my thoughts in line with what the church is saying? Because we've got to remember, we can even sin with our thoughts. We always think, oh, it's just our actions. You know, did I commit a sin? Did I, did I move a certain way? Did I move my body in a certain way to commit a sin? Uh, whether it be to steal or whatnot, we always think of sin as a physical action, but we've got to remember, you know, when we go to church, uh, what is it that we say? You know, I have sinned in my thoughts and in my words. So we got to remember that even before we talk about actions, our thoughts and our words can lead us to sin. That's an important one. That's one I don't think about all the time because what am I thinking about? Gosh, you know, I did this well. I, I acted in this way. I acted that in a way that was fine. I behaved in a way that was fine. It's kind of like being in school. You know, you're sitting there in the classroom and the teacher says, hey, these are the rules. Are you following the directions? Oh, yes, I'm sitting very quietly. Uh, have my hands folded on my desk and, you know, I'm trying to get everybody to, um, you know, be silent and I, I look really good. But what am I thinking interiorly? Am I enjoying uh, being in the classroom? Am I having bad thoughts about this teacher? Am I having bad thoughts about the other kids in the classroom? You know, it's easy to do that. It's easy to, it's easy to fall into that trap. How do I present myself to receive communion then? Well, let's read a little bit about communion. Am I actually thinking about what I'm receiving at communion? Am I actually present when I even go to mass? Because that's kind of the the important part we can ask ourselves, you know, one of the important questions that I hear uh, is when does, when does mass really start? When does the mass start? Is it when the priest walks in? Is it when we do the sign of the cross? Is it at the first reading? Is it when I pull into the parking lot? And the reality is mass doesn't really start at a particular time. You know, it was one of the Eastern priests who told me mass starts when you show up. What does that mean? Is that on the clock? Mass starts when you show up. Nope. What it means is 
Mass starts when you open your heart to Christ and you prepare yourself for the meeting of Christ in Holy Communion. That's really when Mass starts. I have to be ready to receive Christ. I could be in a perpetual, perpetual Mass if I'm always ready for Mass. For mass. All right, more when we come back from the break. Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Louis Sandoval Show. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with our audience. Today, we are talking about the Eucharist and am I willing to fight for it? It's really the question of the day. Uh, what am I willing to do to make sure that I have the Eucharist in my life? But more importantly, what am I willing to do to make sure that I am in the state of grace when I go receive the Eucharist? Get very comfortable when the Eucharist is available to us all the time. We can get very comfortable when society tells us that things are okay, even if we might feel like, you know what, what I'm doing might not be in tune with my Catholic faith. I always want to check myself on that because I, I could easily be doing things that I say, gosh, am I being kind of proud? Am I being short with people? Am I, uh, you know, truly being, you know, generous to other people? Am I talking to people with a, a, a loving heart? Am I open in, in my way of thinking to other uh, Catholics to other Christians to anybody on on the face of the planet, anybody of a different religion, am I judging them, or am I saying, "Gosh, I think I need to be the first one to evaluate myself"? Well, let's look at that. Let's look at what else the Catholic, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says about the Eucharist. This is paragraph thirteen twenty four. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented towards it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Pasch, our, our Paschal ministry, our mystery there. <clears throat> Let's read the next paragraph. This is important. The Eucharist is the efficacious sign and sublime cause of that communion in the divine life and that unity of the people of God, by which the church is keep is kept in being. It is the culmination both of God's action sanctifying the world in Christ and of the worship <clears throat> men offer to Christ and through him to the Father in the Holy Spirit. It's all contained there. What it's really saying is the Eucharist is everything. There's If, if we have everything there, we shouldn't be looking for anything else. That's what our whole focus should be on. But if I'm going to approach God in the Eucharist, which I believe contains the whole of everything, which is pretty powerful if you think about it, this is where I can see people from the outside thinking, Dr. Sandoval, you're nuts. You really think that this piece of bread and a little wine contain everything? What's that all about? You got to check yourself on that one. What's going on? Well, <clears throat> the reality is this, is this is our belief because if Christ himself trans, transubstantiates this bread and wine into himself entirely. It's the sacrifice of to the Father from the Son and brought together by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing else to that. We might not understand the entirety of this mystery, but if I believe that this is the end all to end all, am I prepared to receive the Eucharist? Well, it brings a, it brings begs a question. Can I know that I'm in the state of grace? Do I ever truly know that I'm in the state of grace? Can I 100% with certainty say, yeah, I'm absolutely in the state of grace and, and I can receive communion. Saint, if you read St. Thomas Aquinas, he tells us we can never truly, truly know if I'm in the state of grace. We can't. 
It's, it's impossible to know that with certainty because we don't get a direct answer. Now, if you read the Summa Theologica, uh, it'll tell you that there's three ways. One of them is by divine revelation. If God presents himself to you officially, if Christ appears himself to you, if Our Lady tells you, yeah, you are in the state of grace, wonderful, then I know. But how often does that happen? The other thing is that there's no way to know that. And St. Thomas Aquinas does a few quotes here. It's, it's, it's really incredible to, to read this and to try to understand it. But this is what he says. So he says, but the principle of grace and its object is God, who by reason of his very excellence is unknown to us. So God is still unknown to us by his very excellence, because God, there's nothing that's going to be more excellent. There's nothing greater. This is why I can't even comprehend what I'm receiving in the Eucharist. I walk up there very casually sometimes and think, oh, this is my time to receive the Eucharist. Am I opening my mouth correctly? Am I receiving appropriately? Am I physically in a good state to receive? Am I standing in the right way? Do I have good posture? That's wonderful. But where's my interior life on that? If God is that excellent, but St. Thomas Aquinas tells us he is not known to us, he goes on to quote the book of <clears throat> Job. There's a great quote. There's a great Bible passage from Job 36, verse 26. Behold, God is great, exceeding our knowledge. I'll start with that. And then St. Thomas Aquinas goes on to say, and hence his presence in us and his absence cannot be known with certainty because according to Job, this is now chapter 9, verse 11, if he come to me, I shall not see him. If he depart, I shall not understand. And hence man cannot judge with certainty that he has grace. If he comes to me, I shall not see him. If he departs from me, I shall not understand. God is unknown to us. How do I know that I'm hoping that, that I'm in the state of grace or that I can in that way? How can I know that I can even receive communion? Gosh, if this is unknown and I can never know. Hmm, let's see. Let's see what St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. St. Thomas Aquinas goes on to quote him. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. But neither do I judge my own self, but he that judges me is the Lord. This is the bottom line. Um, I think it comes down to desire. Uh, you know, the, we got to get to the point that we are desiring to have grace, that we desire to have God, because let's look at the third thing that St. Thomas Aquinas tells us. He says, thirdly, in order to know that we have we're in the state of grace, or can we know that we're in the state of grace, things are known conjecturally by signs, and thus anyone may know he has grace when he is conscious of delighting in God and of despising worldly things, and inasmuch as a man is not conscious of any mortal sin. And thus it is written, and this is where he reads from the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, To him that overcometh I will give the hidden manna, which no man knoweth, but he that receiveth it. So this is really the bottom line. The bottom line is we can never truly know officially we're in the state of grace. It's like saying, I understand God or I know God, uh, which St. Thomas Aquinas tells us we can't. But do we have a desire? Do I want to be in the state of grace? Am I conscious of any mortal sins? Do I despise worldly things and really my desire is for God alone? Do I take delight in God? If I'm headed in that direction, I'm probably in a, in a good place. I can never 100% fully know but am I taking delight in receiving the Eucharist thinking, this is God, this is what I'm, what I'm moving towards, this is what I'm thinking of, this is what I love. It's important to consider that because otherwise I would never go up to receive communion. There are some people culturally, you know, in certain, certain cultures, I know in the Hispanic culture, a lot of people will not receive communion because they're afraid that everything is a sin or that they always need to go to confession. And it's, there's gotta be a lot of education. Um, 
really to explain to people what's the difference between a venial sin, a mortal sin, and really that God does desire us to go and receive him in Holy Communion. Otherwise, he would not have instituted that sacrament. But then I've been in other, uh, you know, other masses, other churches where everybody gets up to receive communion. And then, you know, you're thinking, gosh, there's got to be education too. Is this, is, is the confession line as long as the Eucharist line? Um, I've heard many priests say that. Many of my priest friends say that to me. Again, I don't judge. It's a matter of education. I don't know if they need to, if they're, if everybody's in the state of grace ready to receive communion and they, they judge that and their conscience tells them that and they know that they're not committing any mortal sins. Great. I've got no problem. I can only judge myself and I got to ask myself when I am walking up to receive communion, am I truly present, ready for that union or that marriage with Christ? Am I being a good bride? Shall we say is my soul in a bride type state to present herself to my Lord? This is what really that article brought to ma- to mind for me because it's easy to say, yeah, Archbishop Corleone, go for it. You got to bring down these politicians. You got to, and I don't see it as bringing them down. I see it as a sad state of affairs where we really have to fight for our faith and not get confused by mixed messages in our world. Well, what are good ways that we can do this? Because this can be kind of daunting. Gosh, should I receive communion? Am I in the state of grace or not? How do I know? Am I desiring it enough? Well, there's a couple of Bible readings I think that are important, a couple of gospel readings that I think are great. The first one that comes to mind for me is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Um, and it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. How do I know I'm ready to receive Christ? Well, I want to hear what Christ has to tell me in order to know if if Christ is telling me this is what I need you to be like, then I can compare my heart and say, is this where I'm at? Is this really where I'm at in terms of coming to receive Christ? Let's read this, this reading. So the, again, this is uh, Luke chapter 18, nine through 14. It says, then Jesus told his story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. You know, it's funny because I read that and then I, my initial reaction is to be like, well, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. But if I say that, I am being just like that Pharisee. It's the irony of it all. If I'm pointing out to somebody else that, gosh, at least I don't judge other people. I don't know. I just started judging other people by saying this Pharisee is not, uh, um, you know, that holy. That this Pharisee is not very, uh, shouldn't be receiving communion. But I'll let, I'll let Jesus do that because this is Jesus' story. This is where I say, I have no idea where I'm at. But if I start acting like this Pharisee, I might not be in a good place. Let's look, to, let's look uh, and move forward and see what Jesus says about the tax collector. Remember, this is the despised tax collector. The despised tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Stood at a distance, could not even lift his eyes to heaven, right? <clears throat> so, remember, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed his prayer. He stood up by himself. This tax collector, far away, couldn't come close to, to the, the front of the church. He I was at a distance, couldn't lift his eyes. Jesus goes on to say, instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home, justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the key, I think, the first the first uh, key to going to receive communion, to knowing or to 
hoping that I'm in the state of grace and desiring my Lord is to say, am I humble enough to realize I can't look at anybody else in this church without looking at myself first, without stopping to recognize where am I at? Am I humble enough to say, Lord, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. That's essentially the Jesus prayer. You know, if you look at the Eastern churches, the Eastern spirituality, you know, people uh, pray the choki, which is kind of like a, a rosary. It's just a lot of beads, uh, 50 beads, 100 beads, depending on which one you have. And all you do is on each one of you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have, <clears throat> have pity on me, a sinner. That's all you do. You keep keep moving the, the beads back and forth. I think that really sums up our desire to be with Christ. First, it's the recognition. You are God. Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, am I willing, by me recognizing that to begin with, what does that mean? I acknowledge that this is God who I am about to receive. That hopefully puts me in a humble state where I say, I'm not even worthy. I, can't, I don't even have time to worry about anybody else's sins. I don't have time to even think about anybody else's sins. I got to worry about that moment between me and the Lord. I got to be in the zone, as we say in sports. It's that zone. It's that moment where I say, this is just, this is it. It's me and Jesus. Am I ready to receive him? Do I want to receive him? The next part of that, first it was, oh God. The next part of that, he says, be merciful to me. Now remember, it's interesting because we think, oh, okay, so this is the tax collector who's praying this, but this is Jesus who's telling us the word. So really Jesus telling us, this is what you need to say. Be merciful to me. I am in need of mercy, which means I've done something wrong. I am in need of mercy. Why? I recognize that I am a sinner. That's it. Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. If I can think that before communion, I'm probably doing a pretty good job. More after the break. All right, folks, so welcome back to the Dr. Lou Sandoval Show. Welcome back to the clinic here where we always talk about our spiritual health, our mental health, and our physical health. And today we are talking about all three in the most powerful, most complete way we can talk about. Dr. Sandoval, what do you mean we're talking about our health? We're talking about the Eucharist, and there's nothing that's going to complete the human health better than the Eucharist. We should do a show on Eucharistic miracles. Today, I'm just talking about the Eucharist in and of itself. We will do a follow-up on Eucharistic miracles so that we can understand truly what's going on. But it's easy for us to forget um, when we go to receive the Eucharist that we got to put our faith in it as well. Yes, we are receiving Christ. There's no question that that is the body and blood of Christ when the priest um, you know, does blesses the, the, the bread and the wine, it officially turns into the body and blood of Christ, even though we can't see it. There's a transubstantiation, which means that the substance is different, even if the affects or what we're seeing is the same. It still looks like bread and it tastes like bread. It still looks like wine and tastes like wine. But now we got to put on our eyes of faith. And if we do, that's how miracles happen. And we got to remember in the <clears throat> Gospels, we got to fight for the Eucharist. We got to fight to be with Christ. We got to fight for that relationship with Christ. We, I think, we're blinded uh, by still seeing it as bread and wine, because when we receive it, it still looks and tastes like bread and wine. I think our Lord does that for our own, um, really, to help us. Because I think it, if if we saw what it was, if we really saw our Lord in the Eucharist, I think we would die of joy. If we understood what we were receiving, we would die immediately. I don't think that we'd be able to survive the intense and you know a lot of people use the word awesome a lot but 
This is awesomeness in the true sense of the word awesome. I remember growing up in the 80s, everything was awesome and cool and radical. You know, ice cream was awesome. But this is a true sense of the word awesome. If we think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we think that we are in awe, if we were truly in awe of the Eucharist, I don't think that we would ever leave the church. I don't think that we, I think that we would just stay by the tabernacle and never want to be separate from it. That's how we know we're getting closer to Christ. But there's a different uh, gospel. Actually, let's back up to the gospel reading I was reading before, because before, uh, as we were coming up on the break, um, I was reading about the Pharisee and the tax collector and really looking at the fact that we've got to remember that we hear these stories and we can't forget that it's Jesus himself telling us these stories. So what do we learn from these stories is this is it. This is the essential stuff. You know, I can read what everybody else says about Jesus, but when Jesus is telling the parables, this is what I love about the parables. One, they're for everybody. Anybody can understand it, which tells me that Christ came truly for everybody. You know, he always compares here the Pharisees, which are supposed to be upholding, who are supposed to be upholding the law and simpletons, tax collectors, sinners, people who are supposed to be despised by society. And you notice that Christ finds a way of upholding, upbringing those who are despised by society. I was reading about how the tax collector uh, in this one was pointing out the, I'm sorry, the Pharisee was pointing out the tax collector and really lifting himself by comparing himself, saying, thank you, God, that I am not like other people, you know, these cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. Look at how bad these other people are, you know, but really, I guess the question is, why are you so good? You know, well, let's look back at what the Pharisee had said. Um, the Pharisee stood by himself in prayer and said, and that's what he said. I thank you, God. I'm not like these other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. And this is where he said that his, his, uh, goodness lied. He said, I fast twice a week and I give you a 10th of my income. I fast twi twice a week and I give you a 10th of my income. Sounds like he's trying to buy the Lord. Now I'm not judging him. Fasting of course is great, but I'm giving you money is what he's saying. Ironic that he's comparing himself to a tax collector because he's saying, I'm giving you money, Lord. What about this tax collector? All the tax collector has to say is, I recognize that you are God. I recognize that you have full power over me because I'm asking you for your mercy. If I'm asking you for your mercy, that means that I am guilty before you. What do we hear about in our court system? I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of the court, right? The mercy of the court. Well, that's great. Why am I throwing myself at the mercy of the court? Because the court is going to find me guilty of something, right? And this is be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I am guilty. I have sinned and that's all I've got. I don't have anything else. I have nothing before you. If I call you God, then I must recognize that I am nothing before you and I have no chance here. If I've sinned in any way, I have no chance. I throw myself at the mercy. Am I willing to think that as I go up for communion, as I go up to receive the Eucharist, to humble myself to say, I don't know what else is going on, but I'm throwing myself here at the mercy, Lord, because I desire you. I want you to be in my heart. And I have no idea if I'm in the state of grace or not. There was a great quote I read um, when we ask ourselves, am I in the state of grace? Um, this was, uh, uh, there was a question that was posed to St. Joan of Arc when she was on trial in England. Um, and the question was, do you know whether or not you are in God's grace? Now, much like the questions people asked Jesus, this was to trap her. Do you know whether or not you are in God's grace? This was to trap her, to get her to say the wrong thing. And how did she reply? Granted, she's about 13 years old. How does she reply to this question? Do you know if you're in the state of grace? Well, she could reply, yes, for sure. And then they would say, well, that's absolutely not true because nobody can know that you're in the state of grace and the church teaches that. She could have said no. And then they'd say, well, that must be, must mean you're a sinner. So of course we're going to burn you at the stake. <clears throat> Either way, she was going to be 
tricked either way. And what does she answer? This is the key. This is how I think that I want to carry this quote for myself um, to think about this as I, as I move through life and if I, as I go up to communion. Joan of Arc says, if I am not, may God put me there. That's huge. And if I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest creature in the world if I knew I were not in his grace. Why is that such a great, that's such a great answer. Why is that such a great answer? Let's look at it. Let's break it down. Let's see how we can think like Catholics when it comes to receiving communion. I'm not here to judge politicians. I'm here. That's up to the priests, to the bishops to decide who should be sanctioned and who should not based on their, our position in, in the world, based on the power that God had given us. Just like Jesus told uh, Pontius Pilate, he said, you're in power because my father wanted you here. I've got to remember everything happens because God wants us in those positions of power. But let's break down this answer. This is huge. Am I in the state of grace or not? She says, if I am not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me. What does that tell us? That my being in the state of grace is I, I relinquish any power, any acknowledgement of anything to God. Because if I'm not in the state of grace, that means that I'm a weak sinner. I'm not in the state of grace. And I rely on God's mercy and God's power to lead me to get to the state of grace. And if I am in a state of grace, then it's by God's grace that I am still there. May God keep me there. Because out of my own volition, if it's left up to me, I'm going to fall out of the state of grace. Isn't that our life here on earth? We are either trying to lead a state of grace or, or not. If I'm not in the state of grace, God, I pray that you guide my life so that I am. And if I am in the state of grace, then God, it's not because of, of my doing. I pray that you keep me there because you are the one leading me to this place. You're the one keeping me there. That's huge. That's the same thing as, as the, uh, um, the tax collector saying, God, I throw myself at your mercy. I am a sinner. I don't know if I'm in the state of grace or not. What I'm acknowledging is, and she didn't say that she, that she didn't sin and she didn't say that she did. She's acknowledging that, yeah, she could have sinned. It's, I might not be if I'm not in the state of grace, which means that I possibly could have sinned. Then I pray that God put me there. I rely on God's mercy. But if I am in the state of grace, I again rely on God's mercy because he's the one who's going to keep me there. That's important. Now, the question is, that's a great way to think. We got to think that way. I'm going to hold on to that quote for myself as I walk up to communion that I'm going to pray that, you know, God, if I'm not in the state of grace, please put me there. And I'm assuming I'm in the state of grace. I receive communion. And if I am in the state of grace, please keep me there. And it's a great prayer. But am I willing to fight for it? Am I willing to fight for my relationship with Christ? Am I willing to fight to receive the Eucharist? Well, what do you mean, Dr. Sandoval? What do you mean you're willing to fight for it? <clears throat> am I willing to argue with God? Absolutely, because these are great supplications. You know, if I'm if I'm not in the state of grace, God, please put me there. If I am, so keep me. Yes, I rely on God for that. Uh, the gospel reading from before, from Luke again, was a Pharisee and the tax collector, <clears throat> and it shows that the tax collector was just asking God for mercy because he recognizes that he is a sinner, and at that point, again, is saying, "God, it's all up to you." At the same time, what am I willing to do? Am I willing to fight for it? Am I willing to live and act in a way that I can think like it's really up to me to be in that state of grace? Yes, uh, I believe it was St. Thomas Aquinas who said, you know, pray like your salvation 100% depends on God, but live and act like your salvation 100% depends on you. I think there's another great gospel reading that I'm going to read here from the book of Matthew. Let me take out my Bible for this one. This is Matthew chapter 15. And it's called the Canaanite woman. I love this gospel, this gospel reading. 
um, because it shows us also what else we must do. Yes, we got to get our heart in a position where we rely 100% on God, but where are our actions? Let's look at this one. This is a Canaanite woman. It again is uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 is where it starts. It's verse 21 through 28. And this is what it says. It says, Then Jesus left that place and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. It happened that a Canaanite woman living in the locality presented herself, crying out to him, Lord, son of David, have pity on me. My daughter is troubled by a demon. He gave her no word of response. His disciples came up and began to entreat him. Get rid of her. She keeps shouting after us. My mission is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus replied. She came forward then and did him homage with a plea. Help me, Lord. But he answered, It is not right to take the food of the sons and daughters and throw it to the dogs. Please, Lord, she insisted. Even the dogs eat the the leavings that fall from their master's table. Jesus then said in reply, Woman, you have great faith. Your wish will come to pass. That very moment, her daughter got better. This is a huge reading. This is a huge, huge reading. Why do we? Why? Why is this even a huge reading? Why is this a big deal? We got to break this down. We got to think like Catholics on this one. Because, and what does this have to do with me receiving communion? I got to fight for a relationship with Christ. Because if I'm going to look at this reading, we got to realize that yes, our Lord loves us and has mercy on us. But he's also going to test and challenge us and say, well, where are you? Where are you in this fight? Do you love me enough? Do you believe in me enough? Do you have enough faith in me that you're going to keep fighting for me even when you think that I've turned my back on you? Are you going to realize that I have not? Are you going to realize that with my words, even though you might, I might be telling you something, I might challenge you? You got to remember Jesus was a rabbi, right? He was a, Jew, he was a teacher, and how do they? How do Jewish uh, 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 rabbis teach? By asking questions, by continually challenging. So it's not over after the first answer. But are we aware of that? Are we willing to continue to plead with our God for what we want? And what we really want is a relationship with Him. Is that where our heart is? We're going to break this down when we come back from the break because this is a very, very important gospel reading. It has a lot in it. It's very rich. It touches on so many different things, and it's going to be important to look at in our fight towards receiving the Eucharist. Right, well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Louis Sandoval Show. Quick reminder uh, for anybody out there that we are going to be having the men's conference Saturday, June 18, 2022, right here at the historic Sacred Heart Chapel. You're going to get talks from Jesse Romero, Terry Barber, Ruben Nava. Um, really, I think it's wonderful to have the men's conference. I always encourage if you're a couple, come together um, because the men's conference, if we're going to build ourselves up as men and understand who we are uh, in the Catholic world and our Catholic faith and really what it means to be the head of our families. It's great to have our wives with us so that we can do this together. Remember, we're a sacrament together. It's not about one person. Um, it's about both of us being one. And if we're going to try to understand each other, I think it's important to have an understanding of each other um, <clears throat> when, so that when we come together, we're more patient, we're more loving. That's a great men's conference. Again, that's Saturday, June 18, 2022. You can go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org uh, to register. All right. So before the break, I was reading 
this gospel passage of the Canaanite woman. And this is very important. Again, anybody who's tuning in now, this is Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Let's break this passage down um, because if we're going to think about our position in receiving the Eucharist, and if we're too worried that, gosh, I don't know, we can become scrupulous, I'm not in the state of grace at all. Now, granted, if we know that we have a mortal sin, if we know that we've sinned officially, and we know we've done something in our hearts that goes against the church, the teachings of the church, and we've decided that it was okay because I decided it was okay, then let's get ourselves to confession. That's what that's there for. What's our desire after that? Is my desire to stay in that state of sin, or is my desire to move forward and to be with God? Um, you know, if I, if I can recognize that I'm a sinner, remember all these examples we've had before St. Joan of Arc didn't say that she didn't sin. She just said she doesn't, wasn't sure if she was in the state of grace and she leaves it up to God in the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, parable, the tax collector acknowledged that he was in the state of sin and he left everything up to God for us as Catholics. If we have that knowledge, if we're aware that, gosh, maybe I did some big time there, uh, that was bad. I, I decided to go on my own. I went away from the fold. I better get myself to confession and start receiving some graces. And then even just by going to confession, it's obviously that I'm desiring being closer to God. I'm desiring to be in the state of grace. Hopefully I make a good confession and then I get to church and I can receive communion because I have uh, confessed my sins. I've been forgiven of my sins. This is important because if I'm not aware of any mortal sins, how much do I desire God? How much do I recognize that I want to be with God? Even though I might recognize my level of unworthiness because I'm, I'm always going to be unworthy before God if we look at it that way. Even though I went to, I went to confession and, and that's my way of telling God I want to repair this relationship, but am I willing to fight for it? Am I willing uh, to say that, yes, this is 100% what I want? You know, if we think about how many times have we seen relationships, people dating, and they break up for whatever reason. Somebody said something mean or somebody didn't act in according to the way they relate, you know, very nicely to each other. And so they say, oh, we're going to break up because he said this, he did this, she said this, she, she did that. It really broke my heart and I got to break with this whole relationship. That's what happens with sin, right? Whenever we sin, we're breaking our relationship with God. Somebody says something, does something, and the relationship breaks. Um, but then do we ever start thinking about the person again and say, no, you know what? I was wrong. I can, if the other person's wrong, if in my heart I think the other person's wrong, why am I going to get back together? But if I start in my heart to soften up and say, you know what? I kind of messed that one up. I want to be back in this relationship. I want to start dating again. What is it that we do? What do, what do we see people do? <clears throat> I got to buy some flowers for her. Oh, I'm going to write, I'm going to send him um, his favorite song. I'm going to cook him his favorite dish. I'm going to, uh, you know, buy her a nice present. We start doing something nice for the other person and we have to approach the other person, even though we know that there's been a rift, a fight, but we have to approach the other person. We have to say, no, I'm sorry. You know, we, we shouldn't break up. It's going to be different this time. Now, as always, whenever we talk about marriage and the marriage conference or relationships in general, I never advise anybody to stay in abusive relationships. I never advise anybody to stay in a relationship where you're being yelled at, where you're being physically hurt or anything along those lines. That's just not healthy. But I'm talking about just normal fights, normal uh, instances where we say, you know, we're just too different. We cannot be together. Somebody has to come back and somebody says, we'll make this better. I'm sorry. This is how I messed up. I'm going to try to listen to you more. I'm going to try to pay attention to what you need more. Um, you know, I'm really sorry about that. And we, we have to have that fight. And the other person's reluctant, but we really love them. We say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to show, I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to show you. I know that you still love me. I know that there's hope for our relationship. Well, this is like what we're seeing in this gospel reading. And why is this important? A Canaanite woman. Let's read that again. 
It happened that a Canaanite woman living in that locality presented herself crying out to him. Now remember, Canaanites were not well regarded. So already they're not, she's not supposed to be talking to a Jewish man, unless, you know, especially not Jesus. But how does she address him? She says, Lord, son of David, have pity on me. She's a Canaanite woman. She's a Gentile. And she says, Lord, son of David, have pity on me. One, she recognizes just like the tax collector. Lord, son of David, have pity on me. Have pity on me means I'm not worthy, but I'm recognizing that you are God. You are the Lord, son of David. You are the Messiah. You are God. That's a huge recognition because if you think about it in those days, Jesus got crucified for being recognized as God. So if this woman, if I, really anybody in the gospels, if anybody recognizes and, and praises Jesus and says that he is the son of God, already they're putting themselves on, you know, as a target. It's kind of what we do in this world. If I say that Jesus is it, I'm, I'm a bit of a target. But this is what she says. She says, my daughter is troubled by a demon. So obviously she comes to him with a problem, recognizes that he's God, recognizes that she's not worthy and says, There's, my daughter's troubled by a demon, which means that I'm coming to you because who knows if at this point she'd already gone to many different people or just recognize that you're the one who can do it. You're the one who has that power. Gives God his due, lets him know, lets Jesus know that you are the one who is powerful. It says, he gave her no word of response. How many times do we feel that way? We're praying, we're asking God, we're saying, God, please let me know if I'm in the state of grace. And we feel like, how many times do we, do we hear that all the time? God's not answering my prayers. He gave no word of response. God's not listening to me. I'm praying to him, but he doesn't care for me. He's not listening to me. And then, and then his disciples come up and they begin to tell him, and you can hear it in their words, get rid of her. She keeps shouting after us. God, she's annoying. God, this person is just annoying. Can you get rid of her? She keeps, you know, but why do they go to him? Why can't they just get rid of her? Because even she knows Jesus is the last word. It doesn't matter what anybody else tells me. It doesn't matter what a priest tells me, what a bishop tells me, anything along those lines. I can go talk to them. But if I know in my heart of hearts that I'm coming for the Eucharist, Jesus is the last word. Am I willing to keep fighting for the Eucharist? Am I really keep willing to keep fighting for God? In my heart, am I willing to recognize that God is the powerful one, that Jesus is the powerful one? So they say she keeps shouting on us, keeps shouting us after us. And what does Jesus say? It wasn't a very nice re reply, you know. He says, my mission is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember, she's not Jewish. She's a, she is a Gentile. That's, that's what he says. You know, after we're praying and praying, Jesus, please help me. And the reply is, no, nah, you're not worth it. How many times do we feel that way? How many times do we feel like, oh, man, God just told me I wasn't worth it. I've been praying and I just don't feel like I'm worth it. This is a tough one. Jesus tells her, you know, sorry, it's not going to happen. My mission is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he says. Jesus replied that. She came forward then and did him homage with a plea. Help me, Lord. Again, what, does she, what, do we, what do we read in that sentence? We got to think like Catholics on this one. Help me, Lord. She again recognizes that he is the Lord. So acknowledging you are God. That you, I can't do this without you. Help me. Can't do this without you. Even if I'm not in your good graces. Like St. Joan of Arc said, if I'm not in the, in the state of grace, may God help me. How much am I willing to fight it? How much am I willing to continue to recognize that Jesus is the Lord? Which means that she continues, this lady, this Canaanite woman continues to humble herself. She's not done. She's not done fighting. Humble, humble. Help me, Lord. You are the Lord. Have pity on me. Help me, Lord. And what does Jesus say? Even worse. First, he says, no, sorry, my mission is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're not even on my agenda. You're not even on my calendar here. And then what does he go on to say? She Help me, Lord, she says. And he goes on to say, you know, 
It's not right to take the food of sons and daughters and throw it to the dogs. Oh, that's got to hurt. Jesus, help me. Nope, you're not even a, you're not even, you're a dog in this house. You're not even, you're not even at the table. I don't even recognize you as a person. You're just a dog. This is the food for the people who deserve it, who are worthy for it, who are worthy of it. That's a tough one. This is a tough one. Does she stop there? No. This is why I say, are we willing to fight for it? God's going to challenge us. God's going to say, who do you think you are, right? And this is what she said. Does she say, but look how important I am. I'm like the Pharisee. Look, I, I pay. I, I give you home. I pay here and I fast. And I do. No, she doesn't say that. She doesn't say that at all. She says, please, Lord, she insisted. And this is where her level of faith comes in. Even the dogs eat the leavings that fall from the master's tables. Even the dogs get some scraps. I deserve something. Why do I deserve something? Because you are God. I'm recognizing that you are Lord. And by your nature, you are not going to leave me behind. Am I willing to recognize that? That's really what she says. If you're the Lord, and again, because she says, please, Lord. She doesn't stop calling the Lord. She doesn't stop saying, start saying, ah, God's not going to do this for me. I'm going to turn away. Jesus isn't going to do this. No, she holds on to Jesus because she says, this is all I've got. If you can't do this, I am out of luck. Nobody else can do this. this that's really where she's at. Are we there? Are we that hungry for Jesus? Are we really willing to fight that way for Jesus and say, please, Lord, help me, Lord. This is it. You're all I've got. You're all I can. There's nothing else for me. If I, if I don't have you, there's nothing else. What, where else am I going to go? And she says, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. Am I willing to tell Jesus, look, I know that you love me at some point because you've, you made us, you made me. And I know that I know that there's somewhere in your heart to rebuild this relationship. I've got nothing else. I need your help. You're the only one who can do this. I need to get to communion. I need to get to communion. I need, I need that desire. I need, am, am I, if you're going to call me a dog, then that's great. Cause you're actually, I'm less than a dog. You know, you call me a dog. You called her a dog. You said, throw it to the dogs. Okay. Well, I'm going to fight like a dog. I'm going to come up and I'm going to be, I'll be your dog. I'll be at your side. I'll be at your beck and call, but I got to get, I, you're, I know you're going to give me even the scrap. You even need to have mercy on the dogs. What does Jesus say to this? Where she says, gosh, just give me something. I know that you're powerful. You got to give me something. He says, woman, you have great faith. Your wish will come to pass. That very moment, her daughter got better. Why is that important? You have great faith. Faith means that this this is what Jesus is telling me here. You got to keep fighting for it. Remember, faith is a virtue. It's not, it's an infused virtue. It's not something that I can come up with on my own. I can't do this. I need to pray for it. I need to ask God for faith. And this lady, this Canaanite woman was coming to Jesus and he tells her, finally, you have great faith. You didn't stop. We can't stop fighting for the Eucharist. I'm not worried about it if anybody else is in the state of grace or not. I'm worried about me. I'm worried about where's my fight for Christ. He says, your wish will come to pass. Remember, your, her wish wasn't even for herself. She wasn't praying for herself. She was praying for her daughter who was what? Struck by demons. She was troubled by demons. And Jesus from far away, not even being there, she didn't say, Jesus, my daughter needs an exorcism. She said, Jesus, I, I know that you can make this happen. However, you're going to make it happen. That's all you need. How was her daughter saved? By her mother's faith. This is, this is the bottom line. When we go to the Eucharist, are we willing to fight for the Eucharist? Am I really willing to recognize Jesus is the Lord? And if I receive this Eucharist worthily, all the things that I need in my life are going to be taken care of, whether it be for myself, for my family, for anybody else. Do I have that humility? I'm not worried about politicians. I'm not worried about the other people in line to receive the Eucharist. I pray for them. I hope that we're all worthy to receive it. But more than that, I hope that we are hungry to be in a relationship with Christ where we're not going to stop asking for his help. 
Until next week, this is Dr. Sandoval saying, keep it capital.